Good morning. Welcome to worship. I'm glad to see everyone here. We're glad for our visitors. We're glad for our uh, regulars. And we need to realize that this isn't about us today. This is about God. We've come to worship Him. So that's our goal today is to worship Him. You know, there's nothing quite like a thunderstorm in the middle of a hot summer, a dry summer. We look in the west and we see this dark cloud coming along and think, aha, we're going to get some rain, some relief from the heat, some relief from the drought, whatever it is. And the storm comes and with that comes a little trepidation in our hearts and our minds and our souls, wondering what this storm will really bring. Could there be a tornado in it? Could there be a flash of lightning that strikes the barn next to me? What, what do you think? Anyway, uh, the interesting thing is, after every storm, after every storm, there's a calm. Look at the, uh, the places where the tornadoes have ravaged things in the south. In two or three days, the sun comes out, it's shining, and there's a storm. I like to think about that as Jesus passing by. I think that's important as we think about the storms in our life. I'd like to talk a little bit about storms in our life today. Uh, the storms pass by, and, that, and we get over it, and we feel better. But in the, in the end, Jesus passes by, and that's why we feel better. Sometimes we have to identify what our storm is. What, what's it about? Is it me personally? Is it my family? Is it my neighbors? It's something about work? God forbid, something about our church? Or is it about circumstances beyond our control, something that just happens? About a week and a half ago, we're just coming home from a little vacation, and we find out that my son Terry has fallen and, and uh, fractured his kneecap. Well, that didn't sound so bad. Six weeks, and we back up at it. We get the crops planted and everything will be okay. He goes to the doctor to get, have surgery on it to, to wire that kneecap back together. Find out he's got some, a torn ligament and some torn muscles. And he's going to be on crutches for six weeks and maybe back to work in six more. That's a little storm I've had in my life the last couple weeks. We're trying to work through that. As Clem was talking this morning, uh, he mentioned something about God made us and he knows all about us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's, how we're going to react. And we can praise him for that. But I have to keep in my mind that, that God had this all planned. And God's got a plan to fix it. Can I adhere to that plan? Can I submit myself to his will enough to feel good about it? God's sovereign, he's in control. You know, the storms that we go through in life are most of the time caused by fear. The fear of what's coming, the fear of the unknown. In our Sunday school this morning, I think somebody said that we see right here. We're afraid to look further because we don't know what's, what's gonna happen. So what, what, what brings on fear? 
I think a lack of faith is where our fear comes in. We have not trusted, I have not trusted that God's gonna take care of this thing for me. And I'm still working through that. You know, Jonah was mentioned a little bit this morning also, and, and Jonah kind of went through two storms. The one he recovered from nicely and did a good job. Uh, he went to Nineveh, preached the gospel, the people repented, but that didn't please Jonah, and he went through another storm. I don't know what happened to Jonah after that. It doesn't say how God treated him after that storm. I suppose there was a calm in there. The first one, definitely, there was a calm when, when he, the fish swallowed him, and, and I think Jesus passed by again for Jonah and said, and Jonah realized that he has to do what God wants him to do. That's where I'm at with, with my life, and I think that's where we're all at, is, is we have to realize that we're here to serve God, not ourselves, not our family. Uh, God's first. In Luke 24 and 36, the disciples were on the Emmaus Road, and they was, they was in a turmoil. They, they didn't know what to think about Jesus and what had happened. And he comes along, and they didn't even know it was him. And he says to them, peace be unto you. Jesus passed by. That's where our answer is, Jesus passing by. In Mark 4, 39, we're all familiar with these, with these scriptures. The disciples were in the boat, and Jesus was there with them, and the sea became boisterous, and they was concerned. But Jesus said, peace be still. Jesus passed by again. You know, Daniel, when he was being uh, uh, punished for what the king thought he did wrong, they put him in the lion's den. And he, he, he survived that, but I think he survived that because he was faithful, he was obedient, and he was thankful. Three good attributes for me to think about as I go through the storms of life. I can be thankful it wasn't different. I can be faithful to what God has given me. I can be obedient to what he tells me to do. So the ultimate goal in conquering our, conquering our fears is, is, uh, is to find peace. Peace in the storm. That's, that's, that's where we need to be. So what, what is peace? What is the definition of peace? I got a couple things written down here. There's, there's more than that. Uh, one of them is, it's tranquility of, the, of our minds. Have we got the peace of our mind? Are we okay with that? And along with that, it's being free from all worry and care. That's easy to say, a little harder to do. So how do we attain peace? It's, we've, we've talked a lot about it already. It's through obedience, it's through faithfulness, it's through being thankful. In Galatians 5.22, we, we have a list of the fruit of the Spirit. It goes something like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. I like to think there's no accident about the way that was written together where it says love and joy, the first two the first two attributes of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. I believe that if we love and have joy, that will equal peace in our heart at all times. So who is the author of peace? 
We all know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. He's the author. Uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching about the concerns in life. He's telling them how to, how to uh, not worry about things. And in 6.33, he says, Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first. And he lists some things there that we should seek first. And all these will be added to you. And I believe peace is in that list that we can have as we walk through life. In John 4.27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to you. Do I give you, let not your heart be troubled. In Philippians 4.7, he says, Peace of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. So this past Thursday morning, I wake up at 5 o'clock. I can't sleep. I get to thinking about what in the world am I going to do? How is this going to work out? But I know that God's going to take care of this. It's just how do I get my mind around that? How can I uh, bend my will to his some way, somehow? So I laid there a while and finally got up. At 7 o'clock, I went and got my uh, morning devotions that I look at most of the time. And the title of it was Patience in Affliction. Just hit me right between the eyes. That's what I needed was patience in my affliction that I've kind of caught, brought upon myself. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul was relaying how he had three times asked God to remove a thorn in his flesh. Three times he asked him. And finally he said that God told him, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I believe that's where we're at today. So Jesus passes by. He brings our peace if we allow that to happen in our lives. So the questions that come to my mind is, will I recognize Jesus as the ultimate peace giver? Will I put my faith and trust in him? Will you put your faith and trust in him? There's a hymn that we have often sang, and I've used this little verse before. Uh, I'm going to alter it just a little bit, but it goes like this. May the grace of Christ our Savior, I'd like to say, may the peace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above. Before we go to prayer, I'm going to ask for prayer request. First thing I want to say is, I think that uh, my wife has kept you somewhat informed about our, our situation, and I want to thank you all for keeping us in your prayers. Is there any other prayer requests? Zach. This came through in regards to Tom St. John. Um, uh, Good morning. Starting out this morning, I would like to um, take our minds back several years uh, to a story that probably none of you have ever heard. Maybe you have, um, but we're going to go all the way back to 1994. And when we get there, we meet a man by the name of Mario, who is a police officer um, stationed in, I believe, Texas. And this man is um, um, very fit. He's very athletic and active. And he decides to enter in what's called the world's toughest race. And 
Um, I believe that is called the, Mar the Marathon des Sables. Maybe pronouncing that wrong, but basically what it is, it's 155 miles you have to travel by foot across the Sahara Desert. Um, and they do this in roughly under a week. Um, and every person that, that enters in this race is faced with the desert's trademark, you know, brutality per se, heat and sand. But there's none that's had it tougher than this man Mario so far. Uh, not long after the start of the race, he found himself in the middle of a sandstorm. And for several hours, Mario kept trudging along and he would turn his back to the storm and he would, he would um, kind of shelter himself and then he would get up and move just so that he wouldn't get buried uh, in sand. And he kept doing this for some time and, and eventually uh, the storm was over and he kept heading out on what he thought was the correct path. Um, he kept going down this road, this path, but it turned out was the wrong direction. And he eventually realized that he was going the wrong way. Mario had, had been practicing, the, um, you know, preparing for this, and he, he knew what he had to do. And he, he started heading towards, I believe, a mountain range, and he would, walk during, um, he would walk during the day. He would try and find heat in the noonday and walk in the, in the morning and the evenings. And then he got hit by another sandstorm. This one lasted for about 12 hours. And he eventually found a Muslim shrine, which he sheltered up in. And this was home to a number of, of small bats. And he was able to catch a couple of those. And he actually just drank the blood of them. He knew that if he ate the flesh, this would only worsen his dehydration at this point. And yet, this was where Mario decided to give up hope. And he decided that he might as well die here versus out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, where his body will never be found. And um, he found a piece of charcoal, I guess, that was in there, and he wrote a note to his wife on the wall, and then he cut his wrists. Um, but he didn't die. He, he was not able to kill himself. His blood was too thick. It wouldn't even run out. Um, so renewed by this, he set out again, and for another five days, he was heading towards this distant mountain range, and he came across an, an oasis of water, and Despite only having his waste to drink for a number of days, he only drank just a small amount of water. And a family of nomads found him and they took him to the safety of a nearby military base. And the end of the story is Mario made it out alive. He spent nine days in the wilderness. He ended up 186 miles away from the correct route he was supposed to go. And he lost 40 pounds of sheer body mass. He basically had shriveled up. Um, that's quite a story. And I won't really, uh, you could go a number of different ways with a story like that, but I want to, to quickly contradict that with thinking of picturing yourself in the best place you've ever been in your life. Just bring it real to yourself. I don't know where that's it. I'll throw a couple ideas out to you. Um, I'm friends with several Turners, so Canada comes to mind. Um, they talk about Canada all the time, never been there. 
Um, people travel to the Caribbean, especially this time of day, to get some nice sunshine. Uh, you know, green trees, white sand, clear water. Um, Colorado is another one that comes to mind. Um, or maybe you just you you you're um, what you think would be the best thing, you, or best place you go in your life is sell everything you have and just travel. There's people that do that. I, we met a couple. I um, mean, go to Florida, Texas, um, California, Hawaii, or maybe you'd just rather be right here with your church body, uh, body of believers, your friends, your family. I don't know where you'd rather be, but try and picture yourself there and imagine the vast difference of being um, you know, in a desert, in the wilderness, and being in the place that you love to be. So if you want a title for this message, um, it would be Wilderness Living versus Promised Land Living. Now I'm going to spend some time talking about both, and I, and I put a subtitle on there of do I need an attitude adjustment, because actually what we're really going to talk about is attitudes, which is something that we all have every moment of our life. You hear uh, people say, you know, when you hear some kid bawling in Kroger, you know, hey, he needs an attitude adjustment. But we actually possess and express our attitude at all times. Um, it, it doesn't matter, you know, what age you are. This message is for everyone because it's something that we deal with and we don't necessarily think that it's a big deal. That's something that we um, have at all times. It's, I picture an attitude somewhat like a car battery. It's either negative or it's positive. There's really no in-between because really you're, you're on the way to one or the other one. Um, and it's magnetic. I can think of several people um, that I know, um, a couple at work, and it's, it's not Kidron, I do work with them, um, but they, they have what I would call a bad attitude, and it doesn't hardly matter, even when I talk to them on the phone, I get grumpy. It's just, it's just kind of magnetic, it, it, just, it just pulls you in that direction. Um, and also, attitudes have the power to change life and change the direction of life even. Um, they're just very interesting to, to study. I come across this illustration of an attitude um, by, do by Dr. Miles Monroe. Um, he claims that there's, uh, in scripture, there's really only two animals that uh, the creator identifies himself with. And these two animals are the king of their domain. And the first one being an eagle. You find that, there's a, a, he refers to that a couple places, Jeremiah 48, 40, and Deuteronomy 32, 10, 32, 10 through 12. He refers himself as being an eagle. And they really are the king of the, of the air. Any kind of study and I did on an eagle, they're really only the predator that they have as humans. Um, and there's just really nothing that can take an eagle out. The other animal that God identifies himself with, um, you probably already thought of it, but it's the lion. And you'll find that in Revelations. It talks about the lion of Judah. And that's so intriguing, because if you think about the lion being the king of his domain, there's six points that the lion is not, that you would maybe think a king would be. One is, the lion's not the biggest animal. The lion is not the strongest animal in his domain. Number three is the lion is not the tallest animal. He's not the heaviest animal 
He's not the smartest animal, and he's not the fastest animal. So how does he be the king of his domain? And what uh, Miles Monroe had kind of figured out that really it's the attitude of the lion that makes him the king of his domain. I mean, when, when, the, when the lion shows up, everybody's instantly scared or they run away. Um, I mean, you think about that. A lion approaches an elephant, and a lion probably would not approach an elephant by himself, but he has the attitude of the fact that he has the ability to kill this thing, and the elephant knows it and it's scared and wants to run. So it's the, it's the attitude that makes the difference. Um, just in a, another thing that I found about attitude in psychology, an attitude refers to a set of emotions or beliefs and behaviors toward a particular object, person, thing, or event. And attitudes are often the result of an experience or upbringing, and they can have a powerful influence over behavior. While attitudes are enduring, they can also change. So keep that in mind. So I want you to think, um, you know, our attitudes really, are they really important? Do they really make that big of a difference? Um, there is a story in 1 Kings chapter 18, I won't turn there, um, but it's the story of Elijah. And he just killed 450 prophets of Baal on a mountaintop. And in my own words here, he basically reached superhero status. Um, and then all of a sudden, he gets threatened by Jezebel, and he runs and hides himself in the wilderness and requests to die. So what, what was the difference? What happened? And... I would like to propose that it's his attitude that changed. Um, notice the correlation, the mountaintop, the positive attitude, and the wilderness, the negative attitude. And does God really care about our attitudes today? Is it a big deal to him? Um, we're going to spend a, a, fair, or a little bit of time here in uh, the Old Testament, and we're going to read some about the children of Israel. And... They, uh, you'll find out that God cares a big deal about attitudes. Um, and I hope, you know, by the end of this message, you'll be able to answer that question yourself. So if, um, let's see here, if you turn to Numbers 14, um, you'll find a lot about, about attitudes there, per se, and murmuring and complaining. I'm going to get there in a minute. Go ahead and turn your Bible there. Um, so in verses 26 and 29, 26 through 29, God really cares about attitudes. And you'll see he takes great measure towards some bad attitudes. That's the answer to this question that I, that I presented you. Does God really care about our attitude? Um, let's see. 26, and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation and with murmuring against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. 
Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. So basically he's saying everybody that murmured against me that's 20 years and up, you're going to die. You can replace that word murmuring with the word complaining. Um, so you might say, yeah, but that, that's like 3,000 years ago, right? I mean, God's different today than he was 3,000 years ago. He's not like that anymore. Um, if you turn to 1 Corinthians, verse 1 through 11, you'll actually find that a little bit maybe different. Verse 1 Corinthians chapter 10 It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. How that our fathers, how, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed, were under the cloud, and passed through the sea. And they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. For many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be, a, neither be ye idolaters as, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell on one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. And here we go. Neither mur murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them, for, and samples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So that all happened for us to, for examples, as you see in there. And I think you would all agree that we are you know, roughly in the end time, so to speak. We've heard that. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. So I'm saying that that passage of Scripture is for us today. That what happened back in Numbers 14 and back in Exodus happened for us today. Um, before I get too far, I want to establish what attitudes are. I've already talked about them. But attitudes are patterns of thinking. And we all develop patterns of thinking, um, and it starts as a little kid, and I'll use this example of a ball, but we can all place ourselves here. Um, let's say this kid has a ball, and he's thrown it up in the air, and he drops the ball. He has several different attitudes he can choose, and you can put any example in here in your own life to make it real. He can choose to say, silly ball, who made this cheap, lousy ball anyway? It's so slippery, probably came from Aldi. Why didn't my parents buy me a better ball, you know, something from Dunham Sports or something? Or he could choose to say, where's my parents? I can't believe they're not here when I dropped the ball. If they loved me, they would be here to help me pick it up and get through this. Or he could choose to say, I'm such a loser. I always drop the ball. I've played with other kids and they don't drop the ball all the time like I do. I'm the only one that drops the ball. What's wrong with me? I'm such a loser. Or he could choose to say, it's my fault I dropped the ball. People drop the ball all the time. I'm going to have a positive attitude about it. I'm going to pick it up. 
and go on. Maybe I'll grow through this somehow. Stop dropping the ball eventually as often as I do now. Does this sound familiar? Like I said, you can put any example in there. And I can think of several for my own, for myself. And it doesn't just pertain to kids, but that's where it starts. It starts with a pattern of thinking. And they're formed over a long period of time. There's been a lot of study uh, recently done on the brain um, over the past 10 years, per se. And they're finding out a lot of things about the brain. Basically, when you have a, a thought, it's these neuropathways that connect that makes that thought. And the more you think about that, the more natural it is for you to go down that road. So let's think if you're walking through a woods, it's very easy to walk down the, the, the path that's very trodden. Um, if you're hiking in a park or whatever, that's, that's the path you go down. It's very easy. Versus if you were trying to blaze a new path through the woods. Very difficult. So when something bad happens or when some circumstance happens, your brain, your subconsciousness will revert to the path most trodden. Um, and your, your neuro connections will instantly fire down the easiest path. So if you're constantly thinking negative things, that's going to be your pattern of thinking. Um, that's going to be where you revert to when something goes south. Um, look at, you can use the children of Israel as a perfect example. Um, you know, they're always you know, whining and complaining. And I'm not saying I'd be any different in their shoes, but you go all the way back to Egypt, and and it just they start out as soon as anything happens, they they want to go back to Egypt, or they they you know did you bring us out here to die, or, or you know what do you do? Um, over time, their attitudes got so deeply ingrained that um, that we hardly even notice them. They become automatic, and we don't even think attitudes are choices at some point. And it's just, you know, it's just the circumstances that we're in. And we start feeling trapped. And the truth is, is that's not true. That you do have a choice to make. So for a little time, I'm going to talk about just two different attitudes. Um, the first attitude is complaining. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament. Um, and... Basically, if you have the attitude of complaining, you're going to join our friend Mario in the Sahara Desert. That's where you're going to live life. It's going to be dry. It's going to be uh, sandstorms. It's not going to be good. It's, um, you're going to have a, a rough road to hoe, per se. So just looking at some of these, and you don't have to turn to these, um, but some instances in Exodus where we see the children of Israel complain. Um, Exodus 14:12 says, "It's not is not this the word that we did tell thee?" And we'll start over. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, "Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians"? Where it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Exodus 15:24, and the people murmured against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?" In Exodus 16, 3, the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt than we set by, when we sat by the flesh pots. And when we did eat bread to the full, we have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 17, 3, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? 
In essence, they're saying, God, you blew it. You had a chance to meet my expectations, and you just didn't measure up. You didn't do it. It was close, but it wasn't good enough. So does God hear our complaining? I think we've rather already established that. In Numbers uh, chapter 11, you turn to that. Um, we're going to read 1 through 10 there. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. I don't really hardly think I need to go any further to answer my question if God cares about our complaining attitude. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And that's also something that we'll get into a little bit, and that is that prayer really does make a difference, and that God is everything. And verse 3, And he called the name of the place Tabra, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? There they are complaining again. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Must have got pretty far south if they're uh, lusting for onions and garlic. But now our soul is dried away, and there is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And the manna was a coriander seed, and the color thereof is the color of a bedallion. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. And when Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Therefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? Thou layest the burden of all these people upon me. I was going to stop in verse 10. But the, um, as you can see, that Moses and the Lord was greatly displeased, it says there in verse 10. So does God hear our complaining? The answer to that is, of course, yes. So for help on, you know, we, um, basically we need to, to turn ourselves around if that's where we're at today, as in the desert, um, in the wilderness. Something's got to change, and if you have a, basically if you have a problem with this, prayer is where you got to go to. And you've got to ask for help and start focusing on what God has provided for you in your life. Because like I said, it's all about God. Because um, I'm going to talk a little bit about choices, but ultimately, if God's not involved in your choice, if God's not your focus, the desert's where you're going to be. We can't, by our own personal strength, turn this boat around. So, I want to move into another attitude, right? If we get rid of, of one, we need to replace it with another one. Um, and so we're going to turn to, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 for most of this. Um, but the attitude of thankfulness is where we're going to be talking about. And that's what I'm calling the promised land living. 
you know, this form of thanks or this word thankfulness, um, we see it in the King James Bible about 139 times, and a lot of that is even in the Psalms. Um, you know, just for a few references, um, it's repeated over and over in the Psalms to give thanks to the Lord. Um, Psalms 105.1 and 106.1, 107.1, and then about all through the whole chapter of Psalms 107, it talks about giving God thankfulness or being thankful. So I ask another question, is it important to be thankful? You know, in our society that we live in today, they would say that it is. Um, you know, you take our little one-year-old Amity, we start very young, teaching them to be thankful and actually using sign language to say thank you. And so it's just kind of beat into our society that we're, we are to be thankful. And, but get, does God think it's important? Um, and do you even know how to be thankful? You know, you go, you go out to eat. I would say we, generally we know how to be thankful. We go out to eat. I counted roughly, probably say thank you somewhere around 20 times. Um, you know, it's just automatic. You just say it. You know, if they come refill your water, you just say thanks. Um, it's just kind of pounded into us. If you turn to Ephesians 5.20, uh, it says this, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You go to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But ask again, do we truly know how to be thankful? Because this verse is saying, in all things, to give thanks. Um, you know, it's through the good, it's through the bad, it's for, you know, the asked for, the not asked for. Now, I also would wonder, you know, if there's a different level of thankfulness even, there are different levels, because um, I can be thankful to the waitress, but when it comes to hardship, it seems to be a little bit different level of thankfulness. Um, if I'm truly thankful through that. Um, and I think to be living in the promised land this morning, we need to truly give thanks for all things. Um, Daniel would be a good example. Um, I would say the opening that Mike brought to us this morning was spot on. Um, I would say Daniel is a good example of thankfulness. You know, they, they threw him in the pit, and, and what he do? He prayed to God and was was thankful. But he, you know, he also he talks about faith there, having faith. Um, and we also find another good spot in Luke 17. If you want to turn there, um, we're going to start reading in verse 11 uh, through 19. And it come to pass as they went to Jerusalem that he passed. Wait a second here. Might be in the wrong spot. No, we're right. And it come to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered into a certain village, and there met him ten men that were lepers. And if, I think most of you know what lepers are. They would have been a diseased people that were relatively, I believe, uncurable at that point. There wouldn't have been some medication they could take. To cure themselves, and so they were outcasts. They were out of the city. They weren't allowed to be around other people. And 
And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And they saw him, and he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests, which would be very abnormal. I believe there was a, a process for a, le- for a leper that was cleansed, maybe. I don't know a whole lot about that, a, um, an offering. Maybe there was a special offering for them. Probably extremely rare to have for a priest to see that or for that to even have taken place. And so you see them have a little bit of faith here. Because if you continue reading, um, it says, And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So they started heading towards the priest, as Jesus told them. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are, not, they, are, they are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. So here you see one of the lepers uh, giving thanks to God for, for healing him. Um, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about this healing versus being made whole. Because here, they all ten were healed. And so there's... Um, yeah, Jesus says it's, uh, thy faith hath made thee whole. So you can think about that as you go through life. I think we can be healed, but it's not until we have faith in Christ and that we are, um, you know, our subconsciousness goes to, to, um, to God, to pray to God that, until we're actually made whole. Um, so... Moving on, we want to talk about uh, kind of the last thing. We're going to be wrapping this up here shortly, but we want to talk about these things of choices. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going to get out of the wilderness um, living and into the promised land living until we accept the fact that really it's a choice that we have. Uh, maybe some of you don't really like this idea of the fact that it's the person in the mirror that's really the issue here. Um, it seems very natural to us to want to point to someone else and say, no, they're the issue. Um, and it's kind of our subconsciousness kind of does that. And you need to look at that. I, you know, as I studied through this a little this week, you know, it kind of become clear that I do need to look at that because I, I revert to that a lot. You know, I want to push my issues, my wilderness living problems onto other people. But it's really, it comes down to the fact of these choices. And if we don't involve God in our choices, um, I don't think, you know, you may make a choice to, to turn to promised land living, you know, to, to an attitude of, of gratitude. But I don't think it'll be real long lasting. Um, so you remember the story of Elijah. I talked about that just a little bit. He had a choice to make. Um, you know, he chose his own attitude. The children of Israel, they, um, they chose their own attitude. The nine lepers, they chose their attitude. And also the one leper. And Daniel, he also chose his attitude. So um, it's, 
like I said earlier, it's all about God. Um, if we do not involve him, bring him into our life, it's in our subconsciousness and our, our neuro pathways are, are subconsciously heading his direction, um, we're going to be in wilderness living. So that's, uh, that's all I had. If we can have a song, uh, we'll have some announcements, I guess, after that. was different than most. She was extremely kind. She was actually quite contrary to my fifth grade teacher. This, my third grade teacher was very kind, uh, considerate. She was uh, extremely patient. Just a really nice lady to, to be a teacher. And she was young at the time, I'm sure. I, I mean, to me, she seemed like she was probably 45 years old, which is really old. But she would have been probably in her mid-twenties. But I just really liked her. She was a good teacher. And she taught us a song from 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. So I humored myself just a little bit. So she taught me this song over 33 years ago, probably. And it came back to me. I hadn't heard it for years. So we was driving up to Grandma Stalls yesterday afternoon, and that's when I got this text, and so I had to sing it. And I thought I did really good, but the three others in the van didn't think so. So anyway, but it, it made me, it took me back, and it made me think about those two verses that she taught me 30-some years ago. And so as I read this chapter, that's just in the back of my mind. And, and so there's a few, just a few things I want to bring out that I thought about. And so I'm just going to read 1 John 4 now. And this is going to be in the New Living Translation. Some of you are using King James, I know. But I like the way it says it. And it's a little bit hard to follow in King James because the words are just enough different. that. So bear with me if you aren't using the same translation. So 1 John 4, dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has a Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has a spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people who belong to this world, so they speak, those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. But we belong to God and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has a spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a, children, is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
God showed us, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who confess that Jesus is the Son of God have, have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we, were, if we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. So I want to go back, and I don't want to take any of Clem's time because I think he's got a lot to share. Uh, what verse is it? Verse 13. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. But I look at that, and how do we know that we have the spirit? And that was something, I, I came across that as like, how do I know? So what made that teacher of mine different than all the rest of them? What made her different from my fifth grade teacher? Mrs. Yoder versus Mrs. Winkler. What made that difference? And so if you go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit... is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I would say that that defines what my third grade teacher was. That does not define what my fifth grade teacher was. I didn't really like Mrs. Winkler too much. <laughs> And so then it comes down in verse, where was it? 17, the last half. But we can face, it's talk, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. I don't know about you, but that's a difficult thing for me to do. Jesus was perfect in every way. But I got to thinking about it more. The fruits of the Spirit are really the personality and the characteristics and the attitude of Jesus. And so if we have the fruit of the Spirit and we strive to live 
that way, then we'll be living like Jesus. Obviously, we can't be perfect, but we'll be living more like Jesus if we strive to live like that with the fruits of the Spirit. And so I'm going to just stop there. I think Clem has a whole bunch more he's planning to share. Um, So I guess we'll go to prayer. Are there prayer requests? I do want to remember the old father family, you know, this weekend. Okay, Mike and Susie Faye, her mother passed away. Zach, I might call on you to pray here directly. Tom? Yep, definitely need to lift up Tom and Lanny in prayer there as Tom goes to visit Peyton. Been a while. Gail? So Brad Levy's family through the funeral. Butch? The Linwards family? Of locusts? The locusts in Africa. Wow. So pray for the people in Africa. Okay, let's pray.
Well, for whatever reason, um, we've gotten out of Peter and I'm having trouble getting back in. Uh, as far as the teaching uh, that we've been doing this this year, last couple Sundays, for whatever reason, it hasn't seemed to to be the appropriate place. And again, this morning we find ourselves somewhere else. Um, Exodus chapter 15 says that God is a warrior. And we know that the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments stated this, Thou shalt not kill. We know that from the beginning... Murder was forget, forbidden. It was not the heart of God. We know that the children of Israel fought war after war and battle after battle. They were often commanded by God to fight these wars, sometimes to drastic degrees. We know that David was a man after God's own heart, David was a warrior. And he couldn't build the temple because of that. He was a man of war. The Old Testament was often filled with violence. What's different this morning? What has changed? Why is that not the way of God's people today? Exodus says God is a warrior And uh, Malachi 3 says that God does not change. Numbers, I believe, says that God doesn't change his mind. So, So what's different? Why are God's people not going around and killing their enemies in the name of the Lord? I believe that God never changes. Who he is does not change. God is still a warrior today. The Bible also says that God is love. They seem kind of opposite. But it's who He is. God hasn't changed, but when Jesus came, He changed everything. Jesus changes everything. Hebrews tells us over and over again that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He brought a better way. He redefined the kingdom of God. When he came, it says that he was despised and rejected, and suddenly the kingdom of God was no longer just a nation and a people group. It became a kingdom of strangers, of aliens, of pilgrims and foreigners across the whole world. Before the time of Jesus in the Old Testament, the concept of the church and the state, you might say, were one and the same. You had God's people as an earthly nation, Israel. And they were God's people. I think we understand that pretty well. 
But where is this kingdom of God today? It's not in any country. It's no longer just the Jewish nation. If you look at the globe, you will see kingdoms of the world. Russia, China, America, England, and on and on. But where is Jesus' kingdom? We understand it lights up all over the map. There are individuals and communities throughout the world, around the world, that are a part of this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And so no longer do the same rules apply that applied when God's people was one earthly nation. Jesus came and he taught a new and a radical way of living and a new and a radical way of fighting evil. So I want to look at this this morning for a few moments. You can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. And I want to look at Jesus' words. But before we do that, I want to look at what Paul wrote to the believers here in Romans chapter 12. And I just want to hear the heart that he's calling the church here too. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And like, what, what is this? What's he talking about here? You know these verses well. They get, they get read a lot. But it's, it's, it's talking of dying to ourself, of giving up ourself. He says that we present our bodies. It doesn't say present your heart or your mind. It says your body. That's speaking of your whole self. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That word world is not the same as what's used in John 3.16 when it says, For God so loved the world. That, that word world speaks more of this age, this time, perhaps this society. And to be conformed, um, I, I explain it to my children like this. You, you, you have a waffle maker and you pour the batter into, onto that waffle maker and, and you just watch it as it spreads out and it conforms to every nook and cranny and, and it becomes imprinted and it comes out a waffle. And Paul's saying, don't be conformed to this age. Don't allow yourself to flow and blend into every nook and cranny and become a pattern of this age. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove, that you may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He calls us to be transformed. And, and then I want to just go down to verse 9 and continue reading here. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. 
Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one towards another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And some of these words are a little bit hard to understand, but he's saying to stop thinking that you're about yourself. Stop thinking that you're better than someone else. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Repay no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. What's that word avenge mean? It means revenge or to get back at. Avenge not yourselves, but Rather, give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So as we read through this, these verses here, he began with calling us to offer our bodies, our entire selves to him as a living sacrifice. He says it's our reasonable service. He's calling us into his service calls us to be transformed, and then he just goes down through. He talks about love, love, honor, being fervent, caring for others. Bless those that persecute you. Stop thinking about yourself. Don't repay evil for evil. Live peaceably with all men. Avenge not yourselves. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then he says here in verse 20, and he just tells us how to, how to follow through with this. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We're going to turn to Matthew 5 and read a few verses from Jesus now. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. And give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father. Do we see the heart of Jesus here? It's very, very similar words to what 
what Paul said there in Romans 12. And I, I, I've always kind of understood this, but I, I heard a sermon and it kind of clarified it in my mind a little bit, just how much Jesus was saying here. Because he didn't say when someone slaps you on your cheek to just stand there. He didn't say let them, it, excuse me, when someone slaps you on your cheek to turn around and walk home. He didn't say if someone takes your coat, give it to them. He didn't say if they ask you to do something for them, to walk a mile, do it. He said to do double. It's not just going above and beyond. He said when someone slaps you on the cheek, to actually turn the other cheek and let them slap you again. It's not just not retaliating. It's completely disturbing and interrupting the normal life of that person. It just completely, think about what that does to someone when they're treated that way. They're, they're, they're not expecting it, and it's going to catch them off guard. I mean, it's just not normal in any way. It's, it's, it can be, we can get used to the idea of not retaliating, but just of putting ourselves right back in that position to, to have it happen again. This says when someone sues you at the law, I believe, sues you at the law, and takes away your coat. So, so you're in court, and you got to give them your coat. And he says, take the rest of your clothes off. If they need it that bad, give them your shirt too. In this day, the Roman soldiers could, could ask, could require you to carry their load for their, their burden for, for a mile, up to a mile. And he's saying to carry it too. And that's not like... Uh, it's double. It's not 1.2 miles. And it's not today driving someone 20 miles and, oh, you'll drive them 21. That would be 40 miles. That's what double is. It's so much more than just a little extra that he's calling us to do here. When you do this, that first mile is slavery. The second mile is freedom. The second mile, you're choosing to love your enemy. Think about the conversations that can be had on the second mile. When you've completely messed up everything that this man had thought about you as he had you under his control, and you're carrying his burden another mile. What an opportunity. And it's not our human nature. And it doesn't make sense even. Can we see the heart of Christ as he taught this concept here? In what ways can I apply that in my life? There's other areas than what's mentioned here. 
or you run into difficulties with people or things in life don't go your way and it just doesn't make sense to do this. Sometimes it's even hard to know how to do it. I understand that. I, I've got somebody that's treating me kind of bad right now. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it gets kind of messy in life. It's not as clear cut as this because I don't have anybody asking me to carry their burden a mile. Like, I, I think I could do that. I think I can understand that. But, but what about in life when the way that they're hurting you is like, comp, like how, in our culture, it's, I don't know, I struggle with knowing how to go that extra mile with this man. And so I understand that it's not always as simple as reading this and saying that's what I'm going to do in life, but I would encourage you to understand the heart of Jesus, the heart of Paul, when he called us to heap coals of fire on our enemy's head. And when Jesus says to do double what they ask of you, to do double what they require of you, and I assure you that when you find this truth in your life, that you will experience it to be freedom as you're walking that second mile. So pray. Seek God. The Holy, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in this and to, to truly offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and let Him show you how to respond to people. Because it's, our culture today is, is very, very anti this. I mean, it's, it's all about my rights. And the way that you treat me um, is a big deal. It's not what the Scripture calls us to. <clears throat> As I considered the subject of this afternoon, um, I thought I may bring out a few Scriptures along those lines. In Luke 9, Jesus, he wanted to stay at a, at a village in Samaria. And the, the, they wouldn't let him come in. And James and John were upset and they said, Lord, he said, Lord, would you that we would command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even like Elijah did? Because Elijah did that one time. And Jesus responded like this. He turned and he rebuked him and said, You know not what spirit you're of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Do I see the Spirit of Christ here? It's not about, I mean, you could say he was God. He could have, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He could have got them back the way they treated him, but he didn't. In John 14, Jesus says a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As we think about this idea of peace and being a conscientious objector, you know, I, Luke 22 is something that I've never quite grasped and understood and and I don't know that I'm going to convince you of it but I I want to give you something that 
made a little bit of sense to me, but it doesn't fully. It's kind of like Jesus here was setting his disciples up for a lesson. And it was just kind of like he called them to do this just for the teaching and just for the experience that happened. Um, in, up, in, up to verse 35, it says, He said unto them, When I sent you out without purse, he had sent them out earlier and they had healed and they had taught and they had stayed in different villages and he told them to go and, and he sent them out without purse and scrip and shoes and he asked them here, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. So they had went out on these missionary journeys with nothing and they were provided for. They went out in faith. And then he said to them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it and likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And it's like, why did Jesus tell him to buy a sword? For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors, the things that coming concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said, it's enough. So I don't know why they only had two swords among the 11 of them, or however many there was there. Saints won't stay on this morning. But he told them to go buy swords, and then he, they say there's two, and he says, well, that's enough. And I, and I think that's, that's all that was needed for the lesson. But you know what happened next? He went and he prayed. The disciples fell asleep. And pretty soon the multitude came. And what happened? Peter happened to be one of those men that had the sword, and he said, this isn't right. I mean, if ever there was a time to fight, it was now, right? Jesus should not be taken. And so he went for that man, and I believe he was going for his head, and he missed, and he got his ear, and he cut it off. And just slow motion that for a minute. And just imagine that scene there. You've got... Jesus, you've got this multitude, you've got this soldier, there's the high priest's uh, son or relation somewhere there, and Peter had come at him and cut his ear off, and his ear was laying on the ground, and he's bloody. What was going to happen next? Like, that man was going to retaliate, right? This was going to really turn into a ruckus, and, and what did Jesus say? To Peter, he says, put the sword away. For they that live by the sword will die by the sword. And, and he didn't just stop there. He, you know, he picked up the ear and he healed that, you know, that man. He put it back on his face. And I wonder, I wonder what, what happened. You know, that night when that man went home, you know, what, he was telling his children what happened, his wife. And they're like, I mean, did he have a scar? Was it completely healed? Like, did they not believe him? They think he was making things up? Um, I, I don't know. But one thing I know is that man's attitude and perspective towards Jesus had to be something different than what it would have been had that not happened. But we don't read of any other fighting there. It, Jesus, I mean, that, that, that was just about to trigger uh, some serious stuff. And you would think Peter could have been hauled in or something, but Jesus said, put it away. In John 18, Jesus, 
Jesus is standing there before Pilate, and he said these words, and you've heard them. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my people fight. There's so many scriptures, huge subject, don't have time to to go to, to it all. But there's just so many things throughout scripture that call us to love our enemies, that call us to love those around us. And I don't see anywhere that Jesus called us to violence. His name was the Prince of Peace. And Jesus brought peace. And I guess there in that Luke 22 account, the, the only thing that I can reconcile is that Jesus needed the, one of those swords there to be able to tell him to put it away, to be, be able to tell him, you know what, we choose to resolve conflict in a different way, Peter. Um, Jesus took the sword from his people. God says, vengeance is mine. And throughout time, since Jesus, there's been two different theologies in the church. You've got the peace theology, the non-resistant theology, and you've got the just war theology. The peace theology would say that Jesus seems uncompromisingly clear that peace isn't only the goal, but it's the way to achieve the goal. And that we are called to be ambassadors and agents of peace we don't fight fire with fire we don't fight violence with violence we live peace and if that means that we lose our lives in the process or we're persecuted in the process and so be it the just war theology has been promoted by christians for many years and it says that there may be situations that arise where violence is justified and christian participation in that violence is justified And no doubt, to our human nature, there are many reasonable arguments for that line of thinking. Think about the scene when Jesus came. What was going on? Where was the kingdom of God at that time? You know, it wasn't great. It experienced a lot of captivity. They hadn't heard from God for quite a while. You got this this power-hungry man, Herod, that was king of the Jews, and ultimately they were under Roman rule. It was a time of political unrest, and the Jews were looking for someone to bring them freedom. And it came in the way they least expected. Not as a conquering king, but as a donkey-riding, wilderness-preaching, wine-making, rule-breaking, feet-washing, miracle-working, non-resistant servant. And he taught a way of love and peace that was hard for them to understand. And it's hard for us to fully understand. Without the Spirit of God, we won't. You know, for the first 300 years or so of Christianity after Jesus was, was here... Peace theology was really all there was. That was what Jesus had taught, and that was what they lived. And then you've got the Constantinian shift. And you have Constantine, the the ruler of Rome, 
that became a Christian. And what do you do with that? And from that very political Christianity that occurred there came a current of Christianity and politics that have been mixed ever since. From Constantine came this thought that perhaps Christians on certain occasions can use violence and become part of the army in order to bring about good and godly ends. And that became a dominant way of thinking. And then you had the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestants started reading their Bibles in the early 1500s. And on the heels of that, you have the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptist movement that came and, and they said, we've been reading our Bibles. And we started to fall in love with Jesus and we started to see that He taught very clearly that you shouldn't use violence as a way to obtain peace and that it can be a way of life. And so the, the, the Radical Reformers told the Protestants and the Catholics, they said, we're going to follow the simple ways of Jesus and we believe peace, and what followed was a severe persecution of Christians by Christians. It was a pretty messy situation, but it was just a people that wanted to follow the teachings of Jesus in a time when it didn't make sense to Christianity. Now I want to turn back to Romans 13. Romans 13 would be used by our just war friends to say that well, the teachings of Romans 12 have exceptions and do not always apply. Now it's, it's interesting where it's placed here in the middle of Romans 12 and the end of Romans 8 or 13 that, and beginning in verse 8 that talks about love again. He says there in, in, verse, in chapter 1, let every soul be subject, and that word subject is to submit or to honor the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Do we believe that? So, think about when this was written. Think about who was... Who was and, and the ruler at the time Paul wrote this, it was Nero. Was that somebody you wanted to serve? So, what about Adolf Hitler? And what about Pilate? As Jesus stood there before him. You know, Jesus, Pilate asked him a question and Jesus wouldn't answer him. And Pilate says, hey, don't you know who you're talking to? I have power to, to crucify you or release you. And Jesus says, you have no power at all except it be given thee from above. And I see this verse. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister. And I want to contrast this verse 4 with verse 19 of chapter 12. 
Verse 19 of chapter 12 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And here he says, He is a minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And we, can, we see that God can use the governments and the rulers of this world today to get to verse 19 there. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It can happen. He is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And here we see where Jesus really drew a line. He says, for this cause pray ye tribute also. You know, there, you can get into all kinds of thinkings and how, wh- where, what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to obeying the rulers and, and serving them. And, and I think we are called as much as possible to submit and honor them to the point that it does not go directly against the word of God. And you can say, well, but I don't want to pay taxes because I'm going to fund the military. I'm going to fund, in a roundabout way, Planned Parenthood and abortions and and many other programs that I don't agree with. But but here Paul says, and Jesus, Jesus spoke this too. He calls us to pay our taxes. He says, for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There's so many, I know, I know you have lots of comments and questions. Um, there's so many places that, that you could go. I mean, Jesus never addressed voting, did he? They didn't vote then. I won't really get into that other than to say that um, taxes are required to pay paid, and he called us to pay taxes. Voting is not required, but I, I believe that you should let that with your conscience. Um, you won't find it in the Bible specifically. He goes on then in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. Thou sh- this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. And all this is, he says, it's comprehended in one saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The message of Jesus over and over and over and over is love, is forgiveness. I don't know if I've used that word today, but it's, it's so appropriate and so important if we're going to love, if we're going to go the extra mile, we've got to be willing to first forgive. Don't just walk a mile. Walk two. Jesus calls us to fight evil today. The title of the message was called to be a warrior. And I think from the first and the last verse of chapter 12 of Romans, we can, we can see that we are called into God's service to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We'd better be fighting. This message isn't just about being passive. It's not about letting evil abound. It's about a different strategy in a different way, and we are called to be a warrior. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him that has chosen him to be a soldier. We're foreigners here. But we're called to live as if we live in Iran as American citizens. And to not be at home. And to not be conformed. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We're called to fight. We're called to take captives. Listen to this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What are your prisoners of war? Have you been fighting? Lustful thoughts. Anger, ego, pride. Bitterness, addiction. What are your captives today? We're called to fight evil. We're called to take it captive to the obedience of Christ. Ephesians 6. You know this well. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Who is this we? It's His people. It's His kingdom. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance. We have a lot of power through the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to live and to defeat this evil. He has defeated it, but in our life, He does call us in our lives to to take captive these areas that need, that raise their head up against us. Seek the truth. You're going to have to seek God. You're going to have to go to Him in prayer. Reread these scriptures, and there's so many more. And try to capture 
and understand deep within your soul the heart of Jesus when he taught these words. Our God is a warrior, but he's brought us a different way to fight our enemies. I think we'll have a song, and then I may have just a few more things to share.
understand that this concept is, is, is not just about war. And so I just want to think about, as we go to prayer, some areas in our lives that we've become conformed to the patterns of this age, of this time, of this culture. Maybe it's been with your words this week. Maybe it's been with your relationships. We're called to peace. And maybe that's not what describes some of your relationships in life right now. Maybe it's your thought patterns that have been negative or immoral. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your entertainment, not only what, but how much time spent. Maybe it's your career, your other habits. As we go to prayer, let's just lay that before the Lord. And Lord, take this, con- this pattern away from my life and ask Him to transform you and to renew your mind. Because he can and he will allow you to be reshaped for his glory. So let's, let's all stand in prayer. Sorry to get you up again. Heavenly Father, we stand before you today and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here and to hear from your word and to hear from your Holy Spirit. And I just pray that this morning somehow your spirit would speak what I could not and that um, clarity and understanding would be had where I have fallen short. Lord, I, I pray that in whatever way that, that we have become conformed this last week or this past period of our life, Lord, that, that you would just Pick us up and just make us a ball again. Make us back. Take away that pattern and allow us to be renewed and to be transformed and then create us into your image. Lord, I pray that that would be our desire as we live each day in this coming week, that it would be to be more like you and to bring you honor and glory. Lord, to give our bodies as a sacrifice, to get ourselves out of the way and that we would just truly honor those around us love, those around us forgive, those around us, and that this week we wouldn't just go above and beyond, but that we would experience freedom and truly choose to love our enemies. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon we've got, we've got a meal that we're going to eat, and then at 1.30 I'd like to gather back.